0: Hello again, and welcome to Global Exchange, part of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute's podcast network. I'm your host, Colin Robertson. In this episode, we look at Russia, Putin, and the war in Ukraine. I'm joined by three former colleagues in the Foreign Service, Jeremy Kinsman, Ralph Lecician, and John Sloan, each of whose diplomatic service included an assignment as Canada's ambassador to Russia. Together, their surface spans the first three decades since the creation of the Russian Federation after the dissolution of the Soviet Union in December 1991. Jeremy Kinsman also served as our Political Director and as High Commissioner to the United Kingdom and as our Ambassador to the European Union, Italy, amongst other assignments. Ralph Lecicien also served as our Ambassador to Poland, Belarus, Uzbekistan, and Armenia. John Sloan also served as our Ambassador to Armenia and Uzbekistan, and his other assignments included a particular focus on finance and economics. Jeremy, John, and Ralph, welcome back. Hi. Hi. Some context for listeners. The war in Ukraine is into its 10th year, three years since the Frozen War turned hot in February 2022. Next month, 110 million Russians are eligible to vote in their presidential election. While we don't know what the turnout will be, we can safely predict 71-year-old Vladimir Putin will be re-elected for another six-year term. Putin has led Russia as either president or prime minister since December 1999. For Putin, a Russian nationalist, the worst calamity of the 20th century was the dissolution of the Soviet Union that stranded 20 million ethnic Russians outside the new Russian Federation. He committed to defend them and their language and religion. In his 2021 essay on the historical unity of Russians and Ukrainians, he set out an expansionist and nationalist view that in his mind justified his 2014 and then 2022 invasion of Ukraine. This Putin logic would also presumably apply to earlier Russian intrusions into Moldova and later Georgia and its ongoing cyber intrusions and gray zone activities, including election interference in other countries. Opponents to Putin have a habit of falling out of windows or being poisoned. Some die in plane crashes. In the case of Alexei Navalny, he suffered poisoning and then died in a Siberian gulag. Where once there was hope that Russia would take its place within the rules based order, Russia enjoyed G8 status for over a decade. It is now deemed by the West as an adversary and hostile power. While Donald Trump might like to think he convinced NATO members to increase their defense spending, it is the actions of Vladimir Putin that have done the trick. Canada, like most of the rest of the West, Has imposed economic sanctions i was reading this morning some 2500 of them on russia and individual russians russia has responded in kind canada and russia are northern neighbors although we don't agree on our shared arctic boundaries russia is now suspended from membership in the arctic council its founding members or its remaining members are now all members of nato but without russia which possesses more than half of the arctic coastline the council's purposeful activity is seriously impaired. We are both countries of immense land mass, crossing multiple time zones. Russia is the world's biggest country and Canada's second. We also have in common our vast mineral and uh, natural resources: minerals, oil and gas, potash, uranium hydro, as well as agri food, especially meat, grains, and dairy products. While Russia's population is almost four times that of Canada, Canada's GDP is slightly greater than that of Russia. So let's get started. And Jeremy, I'm going to put the first question to you, because you've written a very good piece about Navalny, which we'll link to in the program notes. What did Navalny represent, and what will be his legacy?
1: Well, he represented, I guess, uh, part of the confusion of Russian history that uh, we experienced over the shared time span as ambassadors in that country from uh, the inception of uh, Russia as a wannabe democracy to its uh, state today as what is by any definition I can think of uh, as 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 a fascist country under a dictatorial leader that is what it has become, and Navalny is not just a throwback to to earlier aspirations. Uh, he is actually a connection to some enduring features of the Russian personality. He's, he was a remarkable guy, you know. Uh, uh, he, would, he would win an election in any country I can think of. He, he was, by the way, a patriot and a nationalist, but he is a, a remarkably personable guy who connected with humor, intelligence, and a real gift for communications. It, it wasn't just his ability, uh, to bring, uh, bring a crowd of, of 100,000 or so in the streets of, of Moscow in 2011 uh, you know, to, to a state of uh, ecstasy. Uh, he was a master of uh, current contemporary digital communications and uh, uh, social networks. And as he emerged increasingly as an opponent of Putin, he was shut out of uh, national uh, media, television, which is where you know, 65, 70% of, of Russians get, get all their news from state television. But he managed to circumvent that uh, by extraordinarily creative and I think fundamentally uh, uh, authentic uh, reporting on the abuses of uh, the, uh, what he called the ruling party of crooks and thieves, which you know, has become uh, accepted as an apt description of uh, governance uh, uh, by the Kremlin. Uh, uh, Now, the question is gonna be, uh, he's dead. Uh, He's dead because uh, Putin wanted him dead. Putin was scared of Navalny. He was scared of, of the essential theme of Navalny's messaging to Russians, which is there's nothing to be scared of. Don't be scared of the Kremlin. Don't be scared of Putin. Putin's message back implicitly, uh, you mentioned other killings and all of these things, is your right to be scared. And Russians uh, are very intimidated. I mean, perhaps the uh, million or so less intimidated, uh, uh, probably the the, the young, best and brightest have left the country. But it doesn't mean that they've uh, become zombies. And, and totally passive and and uh, and and that they've lost their attachments to aspirations that they held dearly only 30, 20, uh, I'd say as recently as 15 years ago. You know, every poll, and including polling c- that continues to be taken by by Levada, which remains astonishingly a relatively reliable pollster in Russia, indicates. When you ask Russians what they want of their country, they say they want it to be a normal country. And normal, when you ask them what that means, is democratic and one that respects human rights, uh, which very obviously it does not. So the question is, that is there. They're intimidated. They're suppressed. They know if they speak out against the war or if they demonstrate, they're going to be hauled off to jail. Their kids are going to be kicked out of university. Uh, one third of Russians work for the state and it's hands on by the state to try to control the heads of Russians. Uh, dictators have been trying to do that in Russia for you know as long as, as there's been a Russia uh, off and on. And most notoriously in the last horrible Uh, century that they have in in traumatic form have to go through. And I don't think they're going to succeed. But Navalny isn't there anymore uh, because Putin, as you said in your introduction, actually literally wanted him dead. I think it was Stalin or was it Lenin who said, you know, no person no problem. Well, that's wrong because the person does live on. And I'm not romanticizing it. I think his wife Yuliana Navalnyov uh, will uh, in lots of ways manage to incarnate both the message and the symbol. I don't think that uh, that democracy is done with. I read a couple of pieces this morning by people who agree with me. I read a couple of pieces by Russians who disagree with me. They think it's it's democracy's done and dusted and uh, Putin says in control as never before. I think that's wrong. I think he's weakened The open secret there is that he's scared. Uh, He's scared of crowds. He's scared of the people that he is trying to scare. And that sooner or later, uh, it is going to come to an end. The scary thing for us, apart from our empathy from Russians, is as Biden said, rather pointedly, at a fundraiser in San Francisco two nights ago, that he's a crazy son of a bitch. And uh, that, that may be true. He's got his head as a guy into some very, uh, very strange um, uh, sort of eternity-focused theories and concepts about uh, Russian state civilization in the world and his greatness in it and the, uh, the extreme, uh, what will I say, risk that he took so underinformed about consequences of his invasion of ukraine has rattled the west countries like ours uh, europeans and it's been doubly rattled by the prospect of donald trump coming back and the unhinged things he said about america's responsibility to allies and it's uh, and his relationship in thinking Uh, to Putin. And so it's a troubled time. It
0: is. Jeremy, we'll come back to the Trump side of things, but I want to, Ralph, I want you to pick up next and please feel free to comment on Navalny because I do think for the reasons Jeremy points out, he is important and whether his legacy lives on through his wife, uh, her performance at uh, Munich certainly and since then has been impressive. But my question to you uh, is what next for Putin and Russia? Jeremy's given his perspective, but I'm interested in where where you might be coming from on
2: this. Well, sooner or later, Putin's Russia will end. But I'm afraid it's more likely to be later than sooner. I simply do not see anywhere on the horizon the tools, the people, the interests that would bring about an early end to Putin's control. Uh, as long as Putin is controlled, the war will go on uh, with, uh, with Ukraine and the repression will continue. And Putin has shown himself to be particularly ruthless in the application of the uh, repression. Uh, the, the death of Perushin, uh was, is particularly a lesson to anybody around him that even my good friends, uh, Prigozhin was a good friend, are vulnerable if they step out of line. The The killing of the fellow in, in Spain, the, the pilot, I, I think shows the extreme reach he has. And I think it also shows on the one hand Yes, Jeremy is right that it shows that he's afraid of everyone. But on the other hand, it also shows that he is somewhat confident that he still has the freedom uh, to to attack and to his enemies. Uh, will Navalny uh, be able to uh, pick up? I think it's very hard to pick up a political leadership from outside the country. I think if she goes back, she'll be arrested probably as she leaves the airplane. Uh, so I think it's very hard to do. I think she was wise in her uh, speech in Munich to, to emphasize the role of families and mothers. That is That helped end the, the war in Afghanistan, but it took them nine years to do it. And I'm not sure that Ukraine has nine years for uh, Navalny to organize uh, an opposition. So I'm not terribly optimistic uh, for the time being. And in any case, I think a mother's revolt uh, could probably slow down the war, maybe even stop the war, but I don't think it can unseat Putin.
0: Because they've already suffered more casualties than they suffered in those ten years in Afghanistan that you pointed out. I mean, it, it struck me when looking at the estimated casualties. Again, we don't know how accurate they are, but I presume it's reasonably accurate. That's an awful lot of
2: people' sons to have died. Yes, or and uh, or be injured and crippled, which they're doing their best to hide um, from the people. I heard one analysis the other day that just points out that. For the present, in his drafting of soldiers and all that, Putin has stayed away from the middle class of uh, Moscow and St. Petersburg and has focused on drafting the, the children. Maybe after the presidential election, he may have to start drafting them too, but whether this will lead to the kind of revolt that will stop the war or to imperil him, I don't know. I mean, Putin's not going to be there forever, but for the visible future, I think he's there.
0: Yeah, John, you know, Putin. It is Ralph says he operates through sort of fear. It reminds me of the old Machiavelli uh, dictum: "Better to be feared than loved." Um, where, where would you put Putin in this? You know. I also think of the Sam Huntington thing about civilizational challenges which I've seen a fair bit lately that you know the Russians are just fundamentally different but you know you were there is is uh, and I don't necessarily buy into that but you, there are, there's a, there seems to have been when they had choices they've they've gone a different way I'd be interested in your perspective
3: well Putin hates the elites oh, and the elites of Moscow St Petersburg Ekaterinburg, the educated elites, the urban elites, the well-off elites. And Ralph is quite correct. So far, the attempt has been to leave the, the urban educated out of the, the conscription process. Um, that is probably gonna have to end after the presidential election. And I, I think you know one, one hasn't seen yet the sort of babushka revolt that you had during the Afghan occupation. Uh, but it could come as the body bags keep coming back to the Urals, to Siberia, to the Russian Far East, and 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 people begin to realize what a cost in terms of of treasure and people um, the uh, the war in Ukraine is costing them.
0: No, and as you you know, it's not as as Rel pointed out. It's not just the body bags; it's all the ones that are crippled. They're visible symbols of the war.
3: Yep. No, very very much so. Um, But as I say, so far you haven't seen that Babushka revolt that that led to, you know, some very senior people coming up to to Brezhnev and saying, Leonid, you have embarrassed the Russian army. You have gone one step too far. It is time for you to go. Um, um, uh, One doesn't see that in Putin's uh, Russia.
0: John, stay with me on... Because so I want to delve into your sort of knowledge of finance and economics, in particular as it relates to sanctions and Russia's war economy. What have we learned? Because we there is all this talk that the sanctions we'd imposed in the West were going to dramatically change the Russian economy, but it doesn't appear to do so. And I read, you know, the backdoor through neighbors, and now the, the the Chinese, the Iranians, the North Koreans providing weapons, but the is 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 the failure one that the the West was never able to persuade the rest of the world to join in the sanctions because they've broken this fundamental United Nations press up to respecting boundaries? Or is there something else at play?
3: Well, all of the above. Um, I'm no great fan of using economic sanctions to try to uh, uh, change a political stance. And I think short term, the economic sanctions taken against Russia, Uh, have not worked. It has not changed Russian policy towards Ukraine. Um, um, uh, It is is still very much ingrained in um, uh, the Russian psyche. And uh, as uh, uh, Alison Leclerc was saying the other day, uh, there's no sign of any shortage of anything in Moscow. Um, That said, I've been saying from the beginning that uh, the invasion of Ukraine is basically a lose-lose situation. It's a lose situation for Ukraine, obviously, but it's also a lose situation for Russia. Russia has lost maybe 10, 20, even 30 years of economic development. And this is where I think eventually the economic sanctions will kick in. The uh, 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 cutting off of uh, Russian access, Russian bank access to uh, the SWIFT uh, uh, program um, the cutting off of Russian um, uh, companies to international financial markets. This is going to have a long-term effect on Russian development. Russian development will be economic development will be retarded, and and Russia basically, Putin has taken Russia back to um, uh, probably uh, the end of the nineteen nineties um, at least, and and I think that's not going to go away anytime soon.
0: Ralph and Jeremy, I'd be interested in your view on sanctions. Now, sanctions are sometimes said to be, they, they they satisfy your domestic audience, but they don't really, as, as John points out, have discernible effect. And certainly when you look at the number of sanctions we've put on Russia, uh, it's not that we haven't been layering them on, but their
2: effect of course is questionable. Ralph, why don't you start? I mean, Yes, sanctions have only a, a limited capability. There are ways around them all the time. But not only have the Russians been good at finding ways around them, we have probably been very sloppy in applying them and enforcing them. I think that that's what I mean. Yes, we've what we may call that, but we haven't enforced them. Uh, everybody knew that that fuel would be a problem for Europe once they put in sanctions. Well, it's two years down. Maybe Europe should have been adapting a bit more to having to. Uh, uh, get their fuel elsewhere? Can we demand more? Can we uh, organize countries to actually seize assets? Uh, you know, the British have just gone and sanctioned the the prison people who run, run the prison where Navalny died. Well, that's not going to do anything. These guys weren't going to Britain anyway. Maybe their kids were. <laughs> well. <Now, laughs> Well, they're not probably not sanctioning them. No. Jeremy,
0: uh, sanctions, you you know, certainly you would have looked at this as political director. It's something we've always said is part of the the tool chest, but you kind of wonder how effective sanctions can be and have been, and certainly as John and Ralph points out.
1: Well, I think, think, Colin, the kind of sanctions that Canada is the ultimate specialist in, which are these performative uh, sanctions against individuals, as Ralph said, You know, preventing a prison guard from being able to buy a condominium on Sherbrooke Street in Montreal or something is is just ludicrous. It means nothing. I think some sanctions work, but they only work if you have international support. So on oil and gas, uh, you know, which is how Russians are how Russia is capitalizing uh, this war. Uh, You know, as as long as uh, India and Brazil and China continue to buy uh, Russian oil, I mean, uh, the very elaborate uh, uh, minimum price scheme that uh, has been kicked in uh, for uh, paying uh, Russians uh, uh, for their oil just isn't going to isn't going to make any difference. I do think that financial sanctions uh, do have some effect. I think that uh, some of the ones John mentioned, particularly uh, functioning in the uh, you know, the, the, the transactional side of, of finance, uh, uh, like the swift uh, clearance uh, program, is very, very important. I mean, where, where governments, though, have, have got to watch out is that if, if you're sanctioning Russia today uh, legitimately and uh, maybe rightly, who knows who's going to be sanctioned tomorrow? And there, there's real reluctance about doing what uh, some, a couple of Canadians, for example, advocate doing, which is uh, taking the $300 billion of frozen Russian assets, mostly in European, largely Belgium, Luxembourg banks, uh, and uh, turning that money over to uh, to reconstruction, reparations to Ukraine. Sounds like a great idea, but it's illegal right now. And it's very hard to see uh, how it can be done.
0: Although there's there's certainly a lot of effort going on to you know uh, to to see if we can't do that. I know Bob Zellick and others who, who was at the World Bank are working on that.
1: Yes, the people are working on it, Colin, but it hasn't gone anywhere right now because uh, there's pushback because because it is it is breaking the rules that we we set up, in and in, in, in effect, and and similarly, you know, a Britain can sanction a, some prison guards, but it's it's Britain who has welcomed oligarchs money for the last 35 years and given people a citizenship on the basis of a you know investment in britain it, it's been absolutely appalling and so we're catching up i think that at the end of the day uh, we need a much better campaign of communication that that is authentic to 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 world opinion uh, right now you've got Most of the countries in the world are in what's called the hedging middle. You know, they're not taking sides in this war. And despite uh, efforts to convince them that the invasion of Ukraine by Russia breaks the norms that protect them from outside aggression as much as anybody else, we're not making any headway. And that's, I guess, it's, it's, it's unfortunate. I think that right now the West has got a bad press. It's got certainly bad history. There's kind of a, a, a recreation right now of a, of a retro anti-colonialist mood that's around, including right across Africa. Uh, and it's, it's very alive and well in India. And uh, we've got to uh, honestly got to do better outreach and start, stop talking about ourselves and about the West only. The Biden administration is probably better. At those communications in any administration, including Obama's in the last 30, 35 years, I think they're doing a spectacularly good job, uh, even though it's not actually today getting anywhere on the Middle East and and talking to all all of the parties uh, in play there and trying to get a deal that uh, can stabilize it and, and get, get them out of this crisis, and get themselves out of a political crisis of sorts. On, on Ukraine, there's no substitute right now for staying the course uh, to support Ukraine militarily. But I also agree that, you know, both parties to that war, uh, Putin's uh, overall ambitions are, are way out of line with what he can expect. He lost his, his intention. Uh, to invade and, and replace the regime in, in Ukraine, no matter what happens now, uh, barring some sudden Russian win, which isn't going to happen, um, he, he's lost. Ukraine's won. Zelensky has survived. And Ukraine survived. Irrespective of what the eventual negotiated outcome is, Ukraine is going to be part of the West. It's going to be a growing, prosperous part of the West. It's going to get the money for reconstruction. And it's going to serve as a contrast in modeling socially and in governments, governance and economically to a failing Russia. And I'm convinced that, that, that Putin is as scared of that as he was of Navalny and as he is of the Russian people, because he knows that deep down that's what they would prefer.
0: No, and I think if they look at a successful Ukraine, it stands in contrast, as you say, to a failed Russia, but of course, we're not there yet. Ralph, I wanna to turn to you and Jeremy set this up, but the, my question is when I asked you a year ago, how does the war end?
1: It's
2: it's hard to see how it would end. I think the only real end will come with the end of Putin. Uh, I think anything else will leave the the Ukraine, worrying about the Russians coming back. And any great success by by Russia, Ukraine is not going to stop fighting. Ukrainians are not going to stop fighting. I think any sense that Russia could rule Ukraine uh, has to go out the window because they will continue to fight one way or another, regardless of... of, uh, what What happens at a, at a negotiating table? You know the the end of Ukraine is not near. Uh, Putin still seems able to to go on. So we've got to find there's got to be some way that you stop Putin. John. How do you see this this war closing or does it
0: simply go on?
3: Well, I, I, I think we're almost in a stalemate now neither side is going to be able to win on the battlefield and i think ralph is 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 quite right the ukrainians will will go on fighting regardless they they have a country to defend the russians don't the russians have invaded ukraine they are outside of their borders um one comment is russia does not have an empire without ukraine uh russia does not have democracy with ukraine and and um uh I think there's a certain element of truth in that. Um, whether you have a negotiated settlement, um, uh, I think Jeremy's quite right in that Ukraine will turn to the West. I think its, it's, it's first stop will eventually be uh, membership in the European Union, and that will start the process of economic reform that Ukraine so so very much needs. However, we're not there yet. Um, I think many people are going to die before we get there, but uh, eventually uh, a, a, an independent Ukraine will be able to turn towards the West.
0: All right, Jeremy, the question I put to you is and you, and you see this with the votes or lack their vote and lack thereof in Congress, is the West up for another forever war?
1: No, I don't think it will be a forever war. Uh, I think this is going to end in negotiation. I I am uh, quite convinced, from everything I I read and hear and, and data, that the thing that that both Ukrainians, the public generally, and Russians, the public generally, would prefer, is an end to this war. Okay. Now, they, they, it doesn't mean to say I accept the, you know, the rhetoric that Ukrainians will keep on fighting regardless. Uh, I think if the war stopped and uh, if there was a, a truce, uh, that people would be greatly relieved. That's not to say that, uh, that the next phase, which would be negotiating a settlement, that probably wouldn't, uh, wouldn't uh, conclude for years, Colin. And we're going to be in a frozen situation. Of of frozen, not frozen, but 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 hostility with Russia, uh, uh, right across the line uh, with NATO, um, um, as Ralph said, for as long as Putin's there. But I think that there could be at least a truce at some point. Wars uh, end in negotiation unless there's you know uh, an unconditional surrender, which is very rare. When the publics lose their appetite for it. When when they become exhausted, and and though I I don't uh, the morale in in Ukraine is is conflicted uh, with being terribly tired of this war at the same time as that they're deeply committed to defending their country, which they will tooth and claw, but it is going to come to an end, and and I I I feel that that they're going to have to be, uh, you know, an acknowledgement of things. Right now, we're in a psychological problem. We don't want to undermine Zelensky. Uh, Zeluzny, the chief of general staff, uh, you know, in, in an interview with The Economist, stated what we all know, that the war's in a stalemate. And, and Zelensky felt very offended as if that were demotivating or, or somehow defeatist. But it, it, it is reality. Uh, unfortunately, uh, Putin lives in a bubble, and and uh, and so he 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 is given to overestimating uh, his position all the time. Uh, it's very important that he get he find reality. I think the longer the longer that Ukraine can continue to hit Russia from inside Ukraine and, and hit hit those uh, Russian ships in the Azov Sea and the Black Sea and bring the war home to Russia. Uh, and in addition to what you were saying about body bags and the mothers uh, and, and these other pressures, maybe Putin is going to find uh, somehow a motivation to construct the situation uh, rhetorically and presentationally in a way that enables him to claim victory. But let's not, let's not kid ourselves, it's not victory. And Russia is isolated as never before, and uh, and uh, whoever said uh, one of you said that uh, their economy's been put back in a sense for 30 years, it, it's it's absolutely true. And so and Ukraine's has been actually pumped up, even though the GDP's down 30 percent. They're set. They're on the track with their educated uh, population. But but I it is it is going to come to an end. And we got to stay the course. And we got to be be realistic. Look to our own uh, publics. Uh, and to the, the, the silly situation in the United States Congress uh, and uh, and have real leadership here, uh, which uh, in the West is sorely lacking. Thanks.
0: Ralph, I understand why we in the West are backing Ukraine. It's a democracy, and we see this as Ukraine, in a sense, doing the fighting forest. Uh, but what's the incentives for China, Iran, and, and uh, North Korea to be providing weapons and support, in a big way,
2: to, uh, to Russia. Uh, all these countries, you know, like, like Russia, are, are in essence dictatorships. The, to them, the part of the Putin world view that you do not intervene, interfere, or hinder what goes on in other countries although he tries to influence it, but his formal position of non-interference in them is attractive to these countries. Uh, and they also have short-term needs that I'm not sure that they are are calculating the long-term consequences of. And certainly so this is it,
0: more transactional than ideological.
2: I I think so, yes. But there is an ideological element in that the idea that we can stop the West interfering in our countries too, we would be better off as governments. There's, there's that self-protection uh, element, element there in their, uh, in their policies. I think the the point is a. I I I was encouraged to read a headline in, in the newspaper today that's saying that public opinion seems to be more supportive of Canadian, participation and support in Ukraine now than they were a year ago. That's very encouraging. That's not what's happening in the United States. Or in Europe, for that matter. Yeah. And we have to make sure we don't fall into the trap that this war is only about Ukraine, that this war is about the rule of law. This is about the future of, of an international order. This is about democracy. And I, And I think we have to keep pushing that message.
1: Let me add something here, Uh, there is a polling, political polling in Canada, uh, which shows that that view, uh, Ralph, is eroding significantly in the Conservative Party, and uh, that is possibly because of migration from the United States, of of that view. Um, You asked if it was uh, ideological or transactional, I think it's geopolitical, uh, Colin, is what it is. Is that uh, these countries do favor, in addition to national sovereignty, as Ralph says, and its sanctity, they favor a a better distribution of of influence and power in in a world that is obviously much more multicentric than the world that America thought it enjoyed as its unipolar moment 20 years ago. And so uh, and so, yeah, uh, Brazil and uh, uh, and India, which are, by the way, democracies are, are kind of not sad uh, to see see the United States get its uh, nose bloodied a bit here uh, if it if it contributes to to a greater distribution of power in the world. I've noticed that Lula, has, for example, declared uh, he's not the first to do it and God knows that I can't see how it's going to happen. But the reform of the United Nations in this direction is his most important policy, foreign policy goal.
0: Right. He wants a seat in the Security Council, along with India and others.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We've never managed in 30, 35 years.
3: Colin, in answer to your question, um, uh, why these countries are supporting um, uh, uh, or, or not saying anything about the Russian invasion of Ukraine, I, I think in China it's obvious China is making Russia a vassal state and they are getting Russia raw resources at cut rate prices as is India and and um, uh, I think uh, certainly in the Chinese calculation um I'd I said earlier the Ukraine invasion is a lose-lose situation I think maybe the only winner in the current situation is China who who uh, has Russia where they want them
0: so it's just plain purely to self-interest.
3: Um, it, generally so, yes.
0: And 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 to a degree, as you pointed out, the, the, the changing world politics.
3: But I also agree with Jeremy that it is a geostrategic. I mean, the Russians are, are schizophrenic on China in Siberia and the Russian Far East. The Chinese vastly outnumber the Russians uh, along the Sino-Russian border. And they are very, very worried as to what, the long-term intentions of China are uh, east of the Euros.
1: I'll make a point to you about that, uh, Colin, uh, about China. Uh, China has learned Xi Jinping, however focused he is on, you know, making China great again and everything, has got to confront the reality that his economy is hurting. I mean, it's hurting. It's all relative. We'd kill for a 5.7% GDP growth rate. But anyway, uh, it's hurting. And he's also realized that China's economy and and his legitimacy stands on whether or not he can continue to give growing prosperity to that 1.4 billion people. China's economy relies on a functioning, dependable, credible, international trade and payments system, whereas Putin completely disregards it and is actively disrupting it. And I think that China is coming around. I noticed Jake Sullivan talking to Minister Wang, uh, you know, to set up a long phone call between Biden and Xi Jinping. I bet you guys, you veterans of G20 and G7 meetings, within five years, this world is going to be a G2 world. Okay.
0: John, and I want you to lead on this, but then I want Ralph and Jeremy to come in. Uh, and it's my last question to you. Are we in the West, and especially in Canada, doing all we can to help Ukraine?
3: Uh, I don't think so. Um, um, I, I think, there, again, coming back to uh, my comments on, on economic sanctions, um, um, I think we have done um, what has made us feel good rather than what is truly effective. And I think if we we, we look hard, we could find other ways of assisting Ukraine that would be much more effective.
0: Give me some examples if you can.
3: Well, I think, I mean, right now, the Ukrainians are, are suffering um, uh, an armament shortfall. Um, uh, I know we, we, Canada, have been trying to find the right sort of arms. Um, um, we need better coordination. Um, we're all shipping certain arms to uh, Ukraine, some of which are usable, some of which are not. Um, again, I think greater coordination uh, would lead to greater effectiveness.
0: Right, because it seems to me that the Americans have taken the lead, but are absent for, for now. Yeah. Jeremy, are we in the West, Canada, doing all we can? And if not, what should we be doing?
1: Well, first of all, I, let me start by saying that the, the Canadian military trained one third of Ukraine soldiers uh, before this war. Uh, we've been, uh, this is one one country, I, I decry the lack of the Canadian foreign policy, apart from the inanity of calling it feminist. But uh, the fact is that on Ukraine, we have been there. And, and we've continued to do as best we can. But the sad truth is our own military, as you know better than me, is in the pits, as far as equipment is concerned. We try to give them some of our leopard tanks, and they found old coke cans and the gear shift and god knows what okay the danish prime minister uh two days ago said something i thought was interesting she said taking into account the uh, enormous uh a, a discrepancy now in in how many shells that the russian army has to use every day on the front line as opposed to ukraine said that denmark would give uh the Ukrainians, all of its stored uh, ordnance of its shells and missiles, thinking, believing uh, firmly, uh, devoutly hoping, I guess, that uh, they will not be needed to defend Denmark. We could do that too. We have been uh, recognizing we don't have a lot of kit to give. We've been trying to buy kit from the United States and getting frustrated by Complications of their laws and things, so I think we can do quite a lot. But on on Ukraine, I I, I do think I, that Trudeau this is a one question on which he speaks up, and 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 he's got to continue to speak up, and he's got to speak against uh, those who who have been interfering and and and, and or have been diffident. with uh, that aiding Ukraine materially. Uh, is the most important thing we can do, and and it's 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 exemplary to others. I think the Europeans, by the way, are holding together on this pretty darn well, uh, despite people like Orbán and the Prime Minister of Slovakia. They're holding together very well, and it's very important to reinforce that.
2: Well, I think basically uh, they they have said what has to be done. You've got to support Ukraine with weapons, with armaments if, if necessary. You've got to uh, support them politically and both in convincing Canadians but in convincing the world that this is about whether or not we can have a, a meaningful, useful world order.
0: And, and it strikes me that given the Ukrainian diaspora in Canada, that there should be little division amongst the political parties The Tories and Polyev may not like Mr. Trudeau, but a lot of their base comes from Western Canada where the Ukrainian diaspora is significant. Is that fair?
2: That may be fair, but this isn't about the diaspora. Uh, This is about democracy and the international world order. And the last thing we want is a Canadian government sitting there saying oh but the ukrainians are voting conservative or they're voting ndp therefore we're not going to support ukraine we have to keep that issue out out of out of the calculation in canada this is not about you know supporting ukrainians this is about supporting the country and supporting democracy in the international world order and we have to uh, otherwise you get this thing oh ukrainians are getting this but but uh, Palestinians are not getting as much. There, there are different situations. And I think you have to say that this is not about the diaspora. We're not acting because of the diaspora. We're acting because of the threat to the world order. Jeremy, I think you wanted to come in.
1: No, I know, it's, I, I, Ralph's absolutely right. It's our worst tendency. I mean, uh, we, we do for the you know, Ukrainians, might win a couple of ridings, what we do for the Sikhs and a couple of other writings and Tamils and a couple of other writings, uh, there are 1.4 people who self-declare as having a Ukrainian affinity ethnically. There are uh, almost 900,000 uh, who claim uh, similarly for Russia. I mean, it turns out in, 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 in effect to be something of a wash, but the calculations done uh, by the PMO are riding by riding by riding, particularly in a minority government. And I totally agree. It's an obnoxious, pernicious uh, mindset and we've done it too long in Canada and the world sees it uh, for what it is. We got to do it for, uh, not for just for the big ideals, but for our fundamental state interests in Ukraine uh, winning this thing, surviving uh, and, and, and as an enduring message about, about the absolute inadmissibility of what the Russians did uh, exactly two years ago tomorrow.
0: And when I, Jeremy, I compliment you on your piece today on Canadian foreign policy, as you take us back to our roots with Saint Laurent and Pearson. And when we, we we played actively for both reasons of self-interest, but also for humanist reasons as well, as Saint Laurent put it.
1: Well, I got that Saint Laurent quote from you, Colin. Uh, uh, <laughs> you, you raised it. Uh, uh, Four or five months ago, and I went and read the speech, and you were absolutely right that he declared Canada had a dualistic foreign policy. Pay attention to the United States, on which our relationship, on which we have so much staked, but but maintain our humanist foreign policy in the world, and, uh, and better a better word was never chosen. <laughs> well, and
2: if I could say one thing about the uh, ethnic. Vote. Please, Ralph, go ahead. First of all ethnic votes do not tend to be a block and it's almost an insult for me as a ukrainian canadian to be told that oh you're not going to pay attention to how i govern the country or what my policies are going to be you're going to vote on 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 what happens in my policy towards ukraine that's an insult i am a citizen i vote based on political record and when uh Politicians come to me, say, Well, you're a Ukrainian, you should have this this view. I find that thoroughly offensive. Fair point. All right. My last
0: question to you all, and you might as well start, Ralph. What are you reading or streaming these days? Well,
2: the world situation has has got me so completely depressed that I've gone back to my roots and education uh, in English literature. My wife and I have signed up to go to Oxford for a short while this summer and take a course in in the 17th uh, or 18th century novel, so I've been reading about the Georgians. Uh, One book called The Age of Scandal, it was a lot of fun, another one just on the developments in history and the Georgians period, and uh, that's what I'm reading these days.
0: Very good diversion, Eric. John, what are you reading or streaming?
3: Uh, I'm taking a trip from Seward, Alaska to Vancouver uh, in June. So I just finished Pierre Burton's Klondike, which is all about that era. And then I have also just finished uh, Anna Reid's Borderland, which is a history of Ukraine.
0: Thank you. Jeremy, what are you reading or streaming these days?
3: Uh, it's interesting hearing that
1: from, congratulations, Ralph. on going to Oxford. Very few people know, as I do, that uh, Ralph Physician actually, as I remember, got his MA in English literature. And uh, that's why he writes so well. But uh, what am I reading? Uh, what I'm mostly preoccupied with is writing an interminable book, which constantly uh, gets mauled by the publishers. and I have to re-engineer. So when I read, I, I read fiction. Uh, But I can't in good conscience get too far from what we're talking about. So the two best books I've read in the last three, four weeks at night, as I try and forget the day, uh, have been one, a wonderful novel by a woman called Isabella Hamad. And it's called Among Friends. She is a Palestinian, Brit, American uh, who uh, depicts in this book Uh, an actress from London uh, who, for her own reasons, is uh, on hard uh, times of of mental trouble and goes to uh, visit her sister and father uh, in the family source in Haifa in Israel, uh, where they have lived as as Palestinians. And she gets involved in, uh, she's an actress, and gets involved in a a production of Hamlet in the occupied territories in Ramallah. And there you will see, it's a great story, but you'll see Palestinians who are not Hamas. They're not the poor, terribly besieged people of Gaza. They're professionals and normal people uh, living under uh, what is occupation, but living with hopes and dreams. It's not rhetorically political, but it's very, very revealing. The other book I'm reading I, for the third time uh, is The Russia House by, uh, by dear uh, and lamented uh, Le Carre. And I got to say, having lived through those years of optimism, it, it's, it's wonderful to read. He writes so beautifully and it reminds you that Russians did have hopes then that I dearly hope they're going to be able to realize before long, and it's a hell of a story. Except you can't get Michelle Pfeiffer out of your mind when you no, read. No,
0: we, we we watched uh, Sean Connery and Michelle Pfeiffer not too long ago in the yes. Russia House, and I th- I think the book was actually better in that sense because, as you say, the the the, the film version uh, takes liberties.
1: <laughs> yeah, it does. It does, but she's so wonderful.
0: Yes. All right. Excellent. Thank you, gentlemen, and thanks for listening to this episode of the Global Exchange. We were joined today by Jeremy Kinsman, Ralph Lecicien, and John Sloan. Uh, we will link, as I said, to Jeremy's policy magazine piece uh, on Alexei Navalny in our program notes, and also to the piece he's written on Canadian foreign policy. You can find the Canadian Global Affairs Institute network on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play, and the Canadian Global Affairs Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Global Exchange is brought to you by our team at CJAI. And my thanks go out to our producer, Joe Calnan, and to Drew Phillips for reducing our music. I'm Colin Robertson. Thanks for joining us today on the Global Exchange.